Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, we'll be hearing a couple new voices. We were lucky to have some fantastic summer interns here at the Acton Institute this year, and I was happy to have a few helping me out on the podcast. We'll kickstart today's episode with a segment from Noah Gold, a student at my own alma mater, Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Noah will be speaking with Javier Avila, a Venezuelan dissident who paints both a bleak and hopeful picture of the resistance to government control in Venezuela. Afterwards, another of Acton's summer interns, Jenna Suhita, a student from Hillsdale College, speaks with Jared Meyer, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Jared and Jenna talk about the sharing economy and Jared's new monograph, How Progressive Cities Fight Innovation. If you're interested in any resources referenced in today's episode, you can check them out in our show notes, which I publish each Wednesday at blog.acton.org. I'm Noah Gould on Radio Free Acton. We've all heard about Venezuela in the news about how President Maduro has overseen the dissolution of both the high courts and parliament, and how 25,000% inflation racks the country. But what is it like to live there? I spoke with Javier Avila, a Venezuelan political dissident who presented a bleak picture of the view from the ground. My hometown, Maracaibo, they're suffering right now with electricity shortages of about 7, uh, 8, or tw- even 12 hours a day, or even more, it depends, because they have... They didn't care about investing in the infrastructure that enables energy to, to go to Maracaibo. This kind of happens in many other issues like water, business conditions. There are not good regulations. People is just more like trying to survive uh, while they are just getting uh, poorer and poorer. So it's a quite harsh context where you have not, not only corporal sufferings, but also mental sufferings because you don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And that ultimately can affect your spirit. The Venezuelan spirit was a theme which animated our conversation, with Javier alternating between feelings of despair for the current state of Venezuela and hope for its future. He gave one especially vivid example of a common scene from his homeland. And when you go, for example, uh, traveling uh, in the public transports, you have the metro. It's a quite harsh place because you see an impressive amount of people that have great tumors or that they are totally blind or they have a bacteria that is actually consuming in the, in the moment, asking for food or for money so they can purchase the medicines they require. But the economic conditions are so hard that even the means of giving aid, that is the cash, due to hyperinflation, it doesn't has any value. So they need to work harder in order to get more bills from Venezuela so that they can provide themselves their medicines. These stories from Javier aren't proof of some type of hatred he holds for his country. On the contrary, I have rarely met anyone so patriotic. Javier clearly loves Venezuela, but his frustration stems from his current management. There's a struggle for power in which the players are very weak and they are getting weaker. They're just following with the country. So the thing is that you need to be the strongest of the weaker. Now, Maduro's government controls the oil company PDVSA. You might not know it, but you have probably bought gas from PDVSA because it has total ownership of U.S. gas giant Citgo. 
The average Venezuelan citizen is almost completely dependent on the fortunes of this one company, which accounts for over 90% of Venezuela's exports. People is just like trying to struggle. They, they know that, that uh, it is fall of the government, but they actually are still dependent on the government for feed themselves or for having any kind of service. With less than a quarter of Venezuelans in support, Nicolas Maduro's government is able to stay in power in part because it bribes its citizens with food. The Wall Street Journal reported that, during the last election, pro-Maduro voters could use their fatherland cards to pick up food at polling stations. The socialist government not only takes advantage of its citizens' hardship, but also has partially caused the brutal situation. Maduro allows his citizens very little freedom, including in the market. The business environment has uh, changed a lot uh, with this because regularly they had like a lot of space, but right now there is a law that it is not fully accomplished, but there is a law that says you that you cannot have a profit margin above 30% of what wow. it really costs you to produce it. Restricting profit margins to 30% is a reflection of the labor theory of value, a now-defunct economic theory which says that the value of a good is based on the labor invested into it. In reality, the value of a good is dependent on its value to consumers. Restrictions on profit margins remove incentives for businessmen to create value for consumers. Javier explained how the restrictions on legal business operations have caused many businessmen to move to the black market. Black markets are more vulnerable to abuses and violence because they lack any structure or court systems to support fair business practices. Economic and political oppression has prompted many like Javier to advocate against Maduro's government. Javier played a part in the 2017 Venezuelan protests, which were catalyzed mainly by students and focused on the capital city, Caracas. He described the aim of these protests. Basically, the goals were to apply uh, an immense amount of pressure in order to um, overthrow the government. And every time we went out to the streets, it was a total battle against the government forces that just have the capability of repression by tear gases or uh, water jets in trucks. Sometimes they actually use uh, weapons. And every protest was... Uh, crashing when an impenetrable wall that was protecting power. On June 7th of last year, Neymar Lander, a 17-year-old student, was killed during the protests of Nicolas Maduro's election. That evening, protesters marched in a vigil to honor him. Javier played a central role in the march that day. I remember one day in particular, the day before I received a shield with the Virgin Mary over it. It was a large shield, a rectangle shield, like a meter times 50 centimeters, more yep. or less. And the image was so beautiful and was so symbolical that I really realized what impact I was going to create the day after. The day they gave it to me, they killed uh, Neomar Lander. He was a 17-year-old student from the resistance. And the day after, I went out with that shield at night in a... Um, we can call it like vigilia, like a night protest just for giving our prayers to the soul of Neymar. So I actually went out with it and I realized that people, it wasn't me, it was the shield that they were looking at. And they were like thanking me that I carried up the Virgin. Then I get together with some nuns that began to pray the Rosario. Suddenly, the whole march just get behind us because we were forming a line which uh, was, the bridging was in the center. 
as we we began to 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 march, it was a beautiful march at night with candles, and you actually feel all the suffering and all the hope that the people was holding on those protests. When we get to the top of the march that day, uh, there were some guys that in a truck full of headphones, they just began to to express their feelings and to accuse the people for not fighting hardly as they have been fighting. And that's true, but it's also true that those people were all people, uh, mothers, kids, that were providing them food uh, or any kind of equipment like helmets and, and masks in order that they can be able to fight because not everyone is made to fight those fierce battles that, that, that are totally surrealistic. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, well, I've never been in a public speech, but I realized that the best thing that I was able to do and that I was entitled to do since I was having like a good symbol and people were following me yeah. or looking at me like a symbol. So here's Javier standing with a group of nuns at the front of the march and holding a shield painted with the Virgin Mary. He hears some protesters berating those marching for not being dedicated enough to the cause. Since he has the shield and is a symbol of the march, he runs up to the truck and climbs on top of it. He takes the microphone and begins to encourage those marching. I just tried to connect with people and to tell them really what they were worth, that, that, that this is really a battle for human dignity. This is a battle for, for, for our future. This is a battle for, for getting our medicines and, 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 and well and, and all the goods that we deserve. And each one of us got a role and it wasn't necessary that we all were there like f brutally fighting, but what was necessary was that we stand every day on the street until the, the government is overthrown. He affirms the God-given dignity of those marching, telling them to keep working and to have hope. But he also knows this hope is fragile. I mean, it was really beautiful because, because all the family, all the churches, all the, the civil society was involved in the cause. But sadly, what happened was that eventually uh, it didn't last long. People began to lose hope because the government was really holding on. And uh, at the end, what broke everything apart was that one of the main opposition leaders decided to participate in elections for governors. Mm -hmm. And it was well known that the electoral referee in Venezuela is ideological and political controlled by the government. I asked Javier what the shield he carried in the march symbolized to him. It was kind of realizing that I was really part of a community. And, and, and I was really part not only of a Catholic community, but also of a country with some level of diversity. But it, 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 marked, it marked me in some way that I realized that I need to keep going on. I cannot give them the benefit uh, or the pleasure of giving myself up because if I give myself up, they win. What matters to Javier is the Venezuelan people. His shield was the incredible hope he holds for his country, and he is marked by that hope to continue fighting. To me, Javier is also a symbol, a symbol of resilience and the human creativity that could be realized in Venezuela. But his story is also a symbol of how fragile the situation is. Javier plans to return to Venezuela. He loves his country and wants to be back with his family, but he worries that he won't be able to return to his university this fall, 
and wonders what life will be like in the future. For Radio Free Acton, I'm Noah Gould. Join us, along with over 1,000 friends and supporters of Acton, for Acton Institute's 2018 Annual Dinner to be held on Wednesday, October 17 at the JW Marriott in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This dinner celebrates our 28th year of working to promote a free and virtuous society, and it is our pleasure to announce that this year's special guest and speaker is renowned author and pastor, Reverend Timothy Keller. There will also be a special address from Acton's president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico. You can register for this event at actonacton.org. This is Jenna Sohita on Radio Free Acton. We're connecting good intentions with sound economics. I'm talking with Jared Meyer, Senior Research Fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability, to talk about the sharing economy, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Tackle, all those other new innovations in the American private sector, and how many cities are trying to block them. So I've recently read his short, I guess you'd call it a book. Uh, It's about 65 pages and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. And it's titled How Progressive Cities Fight Innovation. It's a great read, very short and very informative. Jerry, or Jared, I'm sorry. We're happy to have you on the phone today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Jared, one of the coolest things I think about the sharing economy is that it really allows you to see that the basis of an economy is really just people trading with other people. And it seems like the, you know, the progressives complain a lot about how impersonal big business is. So they should really be in favor of this. Why are they so against it? Yeah, that's a good point. Bringing up kind of the dichotomy you see and how you would expect people who uh, typically identify as progressives to view the sharing economy and the innovations that come, and then with the reality of what a lot of these cities are doing. I think one of the biggest reasons is whenever you have innovation, you're going to have older business models or older ways of consuming or working kind of change or go away altogether. And that change, even though I think progressives should embrace it, has been fought back against by a lot of city councils and states throughout the country. Though I do think people in general are in support of all these new services because it not only gives them a new opportunity to work, but it allows them to access things that they simply couldn't before. So just to give us a baseline here, what are some of the typical barriers that you found that cities will put up against these uh, sharing model companies, like some of the regulations in the city government bag of tricks that they'll put in place? So in the mini book that I wrote, I focus primarily on Uber and Airbnb, but I do want to make one thing clear before we go any further, and that's just that the sharing economy isn't only a few flashy smartphone apps. I kind of define it as – in you know, economics jargon, to use one term through this whole interview, the natural result of lower transaction costs. And transaction costs are all the time, energy, effort that goes into finding what you want. So to give an example, when I was growing up, my mom, uh, we lived in Minnesota, and she would go to Goodwill to buy old sweaters that she'd then sew into mittens because, you know, in Minnesota, you need them pretty much year-round. So when she'd go to Goodwill and do that, and she'd sell them maybe at craft fairs on the weekend and on a good weekend sell about a dozen. But imagine what my mom could do today if she brought that business back. With just a few clicks of a mouse, she could be on Etsy reaching people all over the world, an online marketplace for handmade goods. So I see the sharing economy as what happens when these transaction costs fall throughout the economy. She could find a better supplier than Goodwill. She could reach much more, many more customers. She could market her company on Google. So it's not just Uber and Lyft. But with these specific examples there, we saw a lot of cities 
standing up more for the taxi cartels that have existed for decades rather than for consumers who now had new options that weren't available to them before. That's absolutely true. One of my favorites is it's one of those shiny apps, but Tackle is a really cool idea that it uses, you call it um, deadweight capital, just stuff that's not getting used and neighbors are able to collaborate and share their talents, share their capital um, through lower transaction costs made possible by this app. But we are going to focus a little bit more on Uber and Airbnb just because, you know, they're the more popular companies. But so you hear a lot of claims about Uber, for example, that they're cheating or that they're dangerous because they're skirting all those regulations that taxi companies have to follow. Is there actually any evidence that these sharing economy companies are more dangerous to the consumer? <laughs> well, I there are, of course, things that have gone wrong with both Uber and Lyft drivers and passengers. But I think what you always have to do when it comes to new innovation, something going wrong shouldn't be the death knell that comes for that company. Instead, what you need to do is compare it to the status quo. And by all marks, technology has made getting a ride with someone in a four-hire vehicle much, much safer. Believe it or not, the most dangerous job to work in in America is a taxi driver. They have about double the homicide rate of police officers. So they're twice as likely to get murdered as police officers, another very dangerous job. But if you think about it, you couldn't really design a better area for a crime or a better place for a crime than the inside of a taxi. It's completely anonymous. The drivers still carry a lot of cash. And I've heard countless stories from when I lived in New York from taxi drivers of when they were robbed or assaulted. But if you commit a crime in an Uber or a Lyft, you're going to get caught. It's like a cry for help. I think that's why we end up hearing about all these things that are going wrong or the isolated cases with Uber and Lyft because people always get caught. They have your credit card, the company's tracking you and the driver the entire ride. Like the amount of transparency that we have now has brought increased safety. And I think what uh, politicians fail to realize and regulators fail to realize is that there's not just one form of regulation. Of course, there's government regulation. And for a long time, you know, for a few years prior to this, there weren't many government regulations on ride-sharing firms. But that doesn't mean they were unregulated. Consumers were doing the regulating. If you look at the you know, five-star rating system, it kind of shows how technology throughout the economy has given consumers access to much more information and the ability to make their voices heard. So I think there are two types of regulation, and market regulation has been proving increasingly effective as technology has continued to grow. Absolutely. And and you also mentioned in your book that it's not just um, taxi drivers that are in greater danger in this kind of unregulated, well, maybe not unregulated, but unmonitored taxi ride. But it's also, you know, the consumers face a greater threat of you know assault and what have you from their driver than in an Uber vehicle. Um, but another thing that you mentioned, and I get shudders thinking about it, but there are unions now trying to incorporate Uber drivers. Unions are trying to claim that in some cases, Uber drivers need to be considered employees rather than private contractors and that they then need to be unionized. So first of all, why does it matter if Uber drivers are listed as employees or as private contractors? So in America, you either work as an independent contractor or an employee. And when you're an employee, you get things like minimum wage, workers' compensation, overtime pay, all these things that you tend to think of for a job where you have a boss and you have to punch a time card. But what a lot of the sharing economy companies do is take advantage of the independent contracting model, which allows for much greater flexibility and allows the service or good providers to be their own bosses and work for themselves. 
But under federal labor law, people who are working for themselves can't collectively bargain and join a union because it'd be a form of price fixing. It'd run afoul of federal antitrust law. But cities, most prominently Seattle, have been trying to allow ride-sharing drivers to organize through collective bargaining. And this is much different from the app-based you know, freelance drivers association or the freelancers association, which aren't traditional labor unions and they can't collectively bargain. But for collective bargaining, the problem that I see with that for an independent contracting model is it's treating everyone the same. If 51% of drivers want something, that's what's going to end up happening. But if you look at it, drivers come to Uber and Lyft with a multitude of different motivations and, uh, and how they're using the work. I remember one time I had three rides in a day. The first ride was with a student who was working in the morning before his classes so that he could afford to you know, keep paying his rent while he was studying. The second one was with a single mother who was working while her child was in school. And the third was with a father who worked once his wife was back home from work, so then he could go make some extra money to help pay his mortgage. I mean, if you look at all those different drivers, plus some of them who drive full-time, if you're going to have a union and be represented by one collective bargaining agreement, whose interests are those going to represent? I mean, the main benefit of this distributed model of work is complete flexibility, being able to work when you want and on many platforms how you want. Those are the types of things that we need to try to encourage, and it's what a lot of people want from work, especially people who don't fit into the traditional nine-to-five job, and that's not what they're looking for. So when cities like Seattle start singling out one specific industry or just looking at independent contractors in general and pushing collective bargaining, that's going to take away flexibility from a lot of workers. So I'd like to shift directions a little bit here and talk about Airbnb. So first of all, I didn't realize just how restrictive the laws in so many places are on Airbnb. I mean, it seems to me that cities would want to encourage that because, you know, from a college student's perspective like myself, when you're thinking about traveling somewhere, a lot of a lot a lot of times the big question is, well, how cheaply can we stay? You know, and, and having that Airbnb and a, being able to split the cost between your friends and stuff, that's often what makes the difference between going and not going. So why, you know, that's, that brings in a lot more tourism money for those cities. So why would they be against this? Well, there's a few reasons. And I should point out that the debate over ride sharing is pretty much settled. Now, the vast majority of states, over 40 states, have a statewide framework that stops cities from banning these services. That wasn't the case just a few years ago, but now that debate's pretty much over. However, when it comes to things like home sharing or short-term rentals, there's only one state in the U.S., Arizona, that stops cities from treating short-term rentals different from other residential properties. So there are cities are almost completely free in America to just to stop short-term rentals if they don't like it. But one of the biggest arguments that we've seen catching on, especially in large cities, is that place, things like Airbnb and HomeAway and VRBO, what they do is end up driving up rent and making it unaffordable for people to live in cities. I think the best example of this is in San Francisco, where the California you know, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, she actually wrote an article for the San Francisco Chronicle saying that Airbnb was the main reason why the city had such high rents and why people were struggling with housing affordability. Well, I don't really understand how a service started in what, like 2008 can be blamed for a crisis that's been going on for decades in California, (laughs) but it's really just a case of politicians blaming the new guy in town, blaming Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms 
when they're truly to blame by restricting development for so long that the housing supply can't keep up with demand. So that's one of the most common things that you've heard against it. And then, of course, in vacation uh, areas, like uh, if you're out in Colorado or Arizona or on the beach in California or Florida, they don't like more short-term rentals because of the hotels and existing short-term rentals there. They had a limited market. They had access and the ability to charge higher prices. And when you're able to increase supply, obviously that can end up lowering prices and the ability for them to earn extra money. So I think it's a mix of anti-competitive pressures and then also people who are generally worried about high rents but are blaming the wrong person. Jared, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have. That was Jared Meyer of the Foundation for Government Accountability. The book we were talking about is called How Progressive Cities Fight Innovation. It's available on Amazon from Encounter Books, so check that out if you are interested. This is Jenna Suhita on Radio Free Acton, connecting good intentions with sound economics. Thanks for listening. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening today. As we end today's episode, I want to let you know that you can now find us on Spotify and YouTube. We're excited to be expanding Radio Free Acton a bit more, so let your friends know that they can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or their favorite podcast app. Also, if you ever want to reach the podcast team here at Acton, you can email us at rfa at acton.org, or you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180. Lastly, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.